Welcome to the Jess Larson Show on Innovation and Leadership. Today on the show, we've got Tony Aguilar. Tony, thanks for doing this. Jess, thanks so much for having me. I'm really, really interested in the fintech space in general. Um, you know, a lot of people know I started my my real career. <laughs> uh, I, did some, I did some crappy sales jobs, but my real career, I feel like started when I got an emerging and acquisitions team for Citigroup, uh, I guess like 18 years ago. And it's just fascinating to me how many aspects of the industry are changing. And and uh, so I'm excited to have people like you on the show to kind of like teach me stuff I don't know. So let's start with what Chipper is and how many millions of dollars of, of uh, student loans you're helping. And all, like, let me start with this. Isn't it like over like 130,000 customers already you guys are helping? Given just the changes and that, that student loans are coming back into repayment and all the, the noise around student loan forgiveness, uh, we're, we're over 150,000 users now and growing, growing fast. Uh, it's been real fun. That's amazing. Okay, so let's go back. What's Chipper and, and give us some of the stats? Yeah, so, so Chipper is a mission-driven technology company that helps student loan borrowers navigate this confusing world of student loans and ultimately helps them get out of debt faster so they can reach upward mobility. Um, you know, at, at Chipper, we, we, we are working with over 150,000 users. Uh, we have over $3 billion uh, in, in student loans on our platform. Um, and, you know, what we do is we provide a free app uh, that helps borrowers uh, analyze their options, manage their debt, and ultimately pay back, pay back their student loans. Um, and really, the way we do it is, is three things. The first is just provide transparency. So there's all these different repayment programs, all these forgiveness programs that exist, and most people have no idea if they qualify or not. And so a user comes in, they link their loan, answer a couple questions, and we provide them with all the different options that they specifically qualify for. Uh, the second part is we help them take action. So once they find a plan, a forgiveness program, or repayment program that they want to jump into, we handle the entire enrollment process for them. Um, and lastly, we help them make progress every single day with two features. One is roundups. Uh, where a user links the cards they use to make purchases. And every time they make a transaction, we round it, round it up and send the change off to their student loans. So they're chipping away every single day. And also with rewards, those same cards that they linked, they shop with certain brands that we've partnered with, and those brands will kick back 5 to 10% uh, towards their student loan debt. And so, you know, you, you're not going to feel so guilty about going to Target and maybe overspending a little too much because you're going to have a chunk of that transaction go back to your student loans. And so let's talk about roundups for a minute. So it's like, you know, I go get a hot chocolate at the coffee shop mm -hmm. and it's, it rounds it up 50 cents or something. So I'm feeling the pain, but I've, I've got this, like these little transactions all through my month. Absolutely. Just adding a little bit here and there. Is that right? Absolutely. So um, you're essentially tricking yourself to, to chip away and pay a little bit more, right? So, so you're, you're paying off and accelerating your payoff without thinking about it. And what's interesting is, you know, on average, our users are doing 35 to $40 per month. And, you know, that, you know, with the compounding effect of interest, as you know, like adding any additional amount that you can really has a substantial impact on just the long-term payoff of how much money you can save on, on interest, but also how fast you can accelerate it. So that 35 or 40 bucks doesn't seem like a lot, but for our average user, it's, it's cutting off the repayment by two and a half to three years and saving over $6,000 in interest. Um, and so it's just a, a smart way of, of you, you know, chipping away without, without feeling the pain. It is so interesting how the human brain is not built to understand interest repayment or compound interest. Like when you ask people, like you just give an average person like a guesstimate, like, hey, here's this. If you were to estimate like how much that's going to be worth with compound interest over time, 
it's just like in general the the estimates are so drastically lower than than reality across the board like who thinks like 50 cents on my hot chocolate is going to turn into six and a half thousand dollars absolutely right? and that's you know a lot of people come into the app and and they're like you know why would i do this like it's just a couple cents each each day like it's not going to make an impact but then having a calculator to show like based off your historical you know, transactions each month your average you know roundup amount's going to be this much and here's how much time and money it's going to save you and it just blows people's minds like wow you know it's like can you actually make that many purchases or is it really you know the impact of you know the compounding effect of interest um, and so, yeah, it's just a simple way for, for people to, to, you know, chip away their debt. And for most of our users, right, like, you know, paying off, paying off their debts, becoming debt-free, it's, it's a journey. It's a marathon. You know, when you have fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000 in student loan debt, you know, it's not something you're going to be able to wipe away in a year or two. And so every little, you know, way that you can to, to help accelerate that payoff, like makes, makes a big difference. And so, um, you know, it, it's great to you know, provide this type of solution for borrowers. Yeah. So there's so much opportunity in the world of finance because there's such complicated systems that are so archaic that you know, it's been so heavy to try and change them that there's a lot of stuff that's been around for 50 years that probably shouldn't still be around, but it was just too annoying to fix it. And now there's such drastic leverage with with the digital world that, you know, we're not seeing like incremental improvements. We're seeing like huge improvements. Right. Um What's an aspect of financial technology that um, when it comes to like actually being successful instead of theoretically we should do a fintech brand that does this? Yeah. What's something that you think uh, entrepreneurs underestimate? Well, I mean, I mean, I can speak for Chipper, right? What I think makes Chipper special and, and unique is that, you know, the, the types of people that we're, that, we're, that we're helping and working with the types of challenges that they're facing, right? We're talking about people that are drowning in student loan debt. Um, these people are typically serviced by nonprofits or the public sector or government agency, right? And, you know, it, it, typically like the, the financial sector, when it comes to student loans, where like big companies that you see are all about refinancing or lending and giving out more debt. But for us, it's like, you know, we can actually make a profitable business here, a, a pretty big business here by actually helping people that are drowning in student loans. And so no longer are you, you know, in the, in the fintech sector, are you focused on, you know, you know, going down the, the traditional route of lending or investing or, you know, you know, the tr traditional routes that we've seen now because of technology, like there's there going to be innovative ways where we can actually help underrepresented population that may be struggling, but you can still, you know, build a for-profit business, you know, behind it. And that's really, you know, what I think makes Shipper special, where we are for profit, we are venture back, um, and the people that we're helping, you know, our business continues to grow, you know, by helping these people get out of debt faster. Um, and you know, you're seeing it in, in you know, all facets of, of um, the fintech industry right now. Uh, one of the the companies that I really look up to is Propel, um, where they, uh, Jimmy Chin and the team over there are. Uh, they, they made a smartphone app for for the EBT for for you know food stamps, where they've seen this population of 40 million people, you know food stamps every every month. And traditionally, they would you know have to call in the number to figure out what their balance was. And so now they're able to build a profitable you know business you know by serving that that segment and helping those people reach upper mobile. And so it's exciting to see that it's like hey you know in the fintech sector we can actually help 
you know, the people struggling the most and, and, you know, build a pretty powerful business. You know, so something that's super interesting for me personally is like, you know, being in the private investment space kind of ever since Citigroup, uh, so often the really best investments are, have always been reserved for, you know, as long as you make 200 grand a year or more or have a net worth of a million excluding yep. your home, then we'll let you into the good ones. Yep. Yeah. And with the Jobs Act and, and now, you know, equity crowdfunding no longer being illegal, things like this, you know, it, it really opens up opportunities to people that, that were not, you know, that were available to about 3% of Americans now become available to 100% of Americans. And so, you know, people like us who are looking at like, hey, for big commercial real estate funds or things that we're, we're thinking about, like bringing high quality deals to regular people. But, you know, we're used to kind of the archaic, like get an offering memorandum from a from a top law firm so you can give them this huge ppm and they write a check i mean like it's it's big transactions so it's not that bad when you're like waiting days to get a check and do this right but like you know you look at somebody like a fundrise i think they're raising like at least a while back they're raising like two million dollars a day off their website right is it really that high uh, now like that that's amazing right and this is not like waiting for checks and people hand signing documents, right? Everything's got to be digital. Absolutely. So advice for people like us who are like, we really want to get into the fintech sector, into the fintech sector. It feels a little bit like a black box. It can be kind of intimidating. Uh, what kind of advice do you have for newbies? Um, are, you, are you speaking from like a, like a founder aspect or anybody that's looking to invest yeah. and, and participate? No, no. Entre- entrepreneurs who are like, Hey, I see this opportunity. I think that there's an unmet need. We should we should learn this skill set so that we can meet that unmet need. But fintech feels complicated. I actually, I mean, I can, I can say just never in my wildest dreams of growing up, going to college, did I imagine I would be, you know, leading and founding a fintech company, a technology company, a student loan company, right? Like my whole goal was to pursue financial services because you know I grew up in a very humble place and I wanted to help people where I grew up, like reach upward mobility. And me dealing with student loans myself, right? Like I had over $100,000 when I left school. And because it was a problem that I faced and as a financial advisor, I saw that it was impacting everybody around me. I was like, there needs to be a solution here. Like the traditional products and services that exist are not built for people in this situation. Um, and so... It was really out of need, uh, you know, to, to provide a service to people struggling with student loans. And so because of that, of pursuing just wanting to solve this problem that I faced personally and I saw everybody around me dealing with, you know, kind of led me into this fintech world. Um, and so for founders who are thinking of you know, going into fintech or just going to start a company in general, it's like, what is a problem that you are facing today? Because if you're facing it, there's likely, you know, thousands, if not millions of people, you know, facing the same exact problem. Can you go, you know, build a solution that is simple, easy to use, you know, and provide that solution to them, right? And generate, you know, generate revenue from doing it. And so it's it's really not trying to come up with this novel, creative thing of, of, of you know, what's new or innovative. It's like, go solve a problem that people have. And if the market's big enough and you can charge a decent price for it, like you have a business right there. Um, so I think that's the perspective to kind of take if, if you're looking to, to get started. Yeah. So I guess maybe the follow-on question there is like, for me, starting a consulting firm has like a much lower hurdle because I just get the client and I get the work and then our team goes, does the work. Yeah. Where inventing, you know, 
getting coders, inventing an entire financial uh, technology business is is uh, has a level of complexity a lot of other businesses don't. For sure. So if you had advice for founders who are who are wading into a new level of complexity of, of starting a tech business and specifically with all the regulations in fintech, what kind of advice do you have? They're like, I'm, I want to do this. I'm excited about it. And, uh, and I'm a little nervous about the complexity. Yeah. I mean, I was in the exact same position a couple of years ago, right? Where coming from financial services into technology, I feel like those are on like, the opposite spectrums of innovation, you know? And so having an idea around helping people with student loans, understanding how, you know, technology works, how to build a product, you know, how to hire uh, developers, how to fundraise and put a deck together, like how to do all these things are things that I've learned over, over the last couple of years. And, you know, I would say two pieces of advice. One is the information is out there, right? There's so many platforms. There's so many startup accelerators. There, there's so many networks that you can join for free to start learning the foundation of what it takes to just get a company off the ground, right? So go to, go to the YC, you know, websites, uh, tap into 500 startups, every, you know, regional city, like, you, you know, it doesn't have to be a metropolitan place. Like I went to a incubator in Kansas city, right? There's, there's some in South Dakota, like they're everywhere now. There's opportunities for you to, you know, get access to the network, to the investors, to the technologists needed to go build a company. Um, the second thing I'll say is, and, and it was out of necessity, right? Where I, I didn't know anything about, you know, building a company, running a startup, getting started. And I kind of used that to my advantage. And so I got lucky being here in Austin where Capital Factory, which is now at the center of gravity for, for startups and, and founders, was just getting started. And so I was fortunate to get in. And it was just a network of advisors and founders and, and, and investors and so every challenge that I had, whether it's, you know, marketing my new product, whether it's learning how to fundraise, all that stuff, there was somebody there who had experience and was an expert at it. And so I just asked for help. I just asked for, you know, the, the you know, knowledge and, um, you know, do you have 30 minutes to sit down with me and take a look at my business plan, take a look at my deck, like, here's how I'm thinking about hiring. And the craziest thing that I learned was that people are willing to help. Like, they want to help, especially if they have the experience in doing it. They want to see you succeed. And so, you know, if you don't, you feel like you have no idea what you're doing, like, I think that's most founders, like, right when you're getting started. But know that the resources out there, the people are out there to, to help you, you know, become successful. So let, let's take a couple of these topics you just brought up. <laughs> Fundraising. Yeah. You know, there's, there's the percentage of people that go for VC funding specifically versus the percentage to get them. It's a pretty small number. Uh, when you think about, what you did different, that you actually got VC funding, what do you attribute that to? Yeah. I mean, so last year, 2021 was the biggest year for venture capital ever, right? Uh, $330 billion were invested into startups, you know, everywhere. And less than half a percent went to Latino, Latino founders in the U.S., right? So being one of those is, you know, we're in a very, very small, you know, suburb. Um, and, you know, what I think I did different um, and it's not just, you know, because of my background, but I think what I did different to enable me to run an efficient fundraise was one, every investor meeting that you have is a chance to learn and understand what is actually, you know, sinking and aligning with, with investors, what is confusing, right? And so we went through 59 pitches before we got a yes, right? With, with, with my, you know, 
through our first fundraising, 59. Um, and, and every after every single meeting, it was downloading and really understanding of like, okay, what questions are they asking, right? If there's a common thread of the same questions being asked in multiple conversations, like that is an opportunity for you to provide that clarity within your deck right away, right? So um, you want those investors to walk away with, you know, as minimal questions as possible, right? And so every single iter- like every single conversation was a was a was an opportunity for me to iterate my deck in the way I pitched it. Um, and then I would say the second thing is, you know, not giving up. You know, it's so hard to, you know, go through a dozen conversations, to go through 20, to go through 25 investor conversations, and you're getting flat nose across the board. Like they, that takes a shot to your ego. That makes you, you know, start to believe in what you're doing. Like, am I crazy? Why am I doing this? You know, it's, it's, it's a mental game. And so just um, having people around you to keep talking to as you go through those, you know, those trenches, like it's, it, it's a lonely place. Um, and so making sure you're not doing it alone, you know, making sure you're reaching out to other founders, to talking to your team, talking to advisors, anybody that's willing to sit down and hear you vent, <laughs> you know, over and over again, um, I, I think is crucial uh, because, you know, you could get to a pretty dark place very quickly with with all those notes. Um, so iterate as much as you can, uh, you know, find those patterns as you're going through fundraising and just don't give up like you know, all it all it takes is one, right? So what's what Cuban said, and it's true. Once you get that one and that confidence and that first check that comes in, that's where momentum really starts to build. Um, and, and and at that point, for most startups, it accelerates and, and fundraising closes for that round pretty quick. So let's talk about this. Um, talk about how you felt after the twenty fifth note compared to how you felt after the fiftieth note. <laughs> Honestly, the I would say the first like ten fifteen were the hardest. Uh, because that's when you're really like it's sloppy. You're you're trying to like put pieces together, you know, and the story's not making sense. You're getting questions asked that you didn't think of, and so your response is there. You're stuttering back. You you don't know really what's going. On. You know those meetings just went terrible. So I think those first batch of like of meetings, you know, were the hardest. Um, as I refined my deck, as I got, you know, um, you know. You know, because as we as we went through the process, you're kind of getting people on the fence. You're getting some interest, right? And so from there, you know, my confidence started to build, and I knew that we were getting pretty close, right? Um, and so it was just that first batch that was, you know, kind of, you know, the, the trial and error. And so the advice I would give there is, you know, make a list of your A, B, C, you know, potential investors, and for those first, you know, five, ten, fifteen conversations, make those your C investors, right? You don't want to go pitch, you know, an of your highlight investor that you really, really want in your first two or three pitches, because it's not going to go as well as you as you think. And so you want to make sure you have those reps in. You can really pick up your story, uh, refine your deck, and you're going to be ready to go. Uh, you know, by the time you you start having those conversations, that's good. Uh, so what what did progress? Like what changed over 59 pitches? What's an example of something a pattern you recognized that that helped you evolve? Yeah. So for you know, when you're, when you're going through a fundraise, um, a lot of times you're building relationships or having conversations early on with investors. And so, you know, your first meeting, even though you're not actually, you know, maybe pitching a deck or, you know, trying to get, you know, um, uh, money, you know, within those first initial conversations, um, you know, investors are giving you hints of what they want to see, what kind of progress they want to see, what kind of traction they want to see, right? 
Um, so what enabled us to really, you know, you know, because it was a longer process than expected, we were able to start building up traction up to that point, right? So we were able to really hone in on our sales strategy or acquisition strategy or for you, whatever, you know, what, whatever is the progress or milestones that you need to hit. It's like getting some insight into what those things are. So when those conversations are had and the real pitch meeting is there and, you know, you're not just talking to an associate early on, you're now in you know, the partner meeting, you can, you know, talk about the progress you've made, you know, from the first conversation or from, you know, you know previous three months, right? So it's trying to show that that progress is there and that, and that you're also like learning, right? So if they're telling you we need to go see this or, or see that in order to feel confident and, you know, to write a check. It's like, okay, I took that to heart. Our team is going to go focus on that and execute. There's, there's not, you know, anything else that you can prove, you know, to an investor than to, to show that you can execute from, you know, any insider or feedback they provided to you. That's great. What are a couple of examples of what those things were for you guys? Um, so, you know, the 59 no's before a yes was actually with my first, my first startup. That was Student Loan Genius. And so um, with that company, um, it was actually closing deals. So, you know, Student Loan Genius was, uh, we pioneered the 401k for student loans. Um, so I'm really trying to solve this student loan epidemic, Jess, but it's, it's not, it hasn't gone away yet. It's only gotten bigger, right? Uh, so that first company was, you know, coming out with a new benefit that no one has ever heard about before, right? Like, what, you're going to get companies to pay down debt for employees? Like, no way, no one's ever going to do that. And for us, it's like, hey, you, you know, giving money to employees for 401k and investments all the time, you know, why not, you know, help them with the biggest financial burden they have today. And so for us, it, it was just closing deals and getting companies to buy in. And uh, initially it was just like LOIs. It wasn't even real deals yet. It was just, you know, any type of traction that we could provide to show that companies are willing to provide this type of service to their employees. Um, but that, that was the biggest key. It was just, you know, showing that there's, potential customers in there and they're willing to actually purchase, you know, purchase what we're selling. Traction, right? Traction. That's it. I love it. Uh, well, let's shift gears then. Um, you know, when you think about, how, let's just take fintech. How many, how many people are excited about the possibilities in fintech? You know, before the show, we were talking about Divi and, you know, having Alex Bean on here on the show and raising 30 million, 250 million, and then selling for 2.6 billion. Like, that's a that's a magnetic story. Right? What how what was that um, time frame by the way? Oh, uh, maybe like four, three and a half years. That's amazing. That's so something fast. Something like that. Yeah. I would say between interviews, like for the first interview to the last interview, would be my guess. Four years, something like that. Three or four years, yeah. Um, and so there's a whole bunch of people, whole bunch of people that that see the results others are getting, that get excited about it, and yet so many of the. Uh, Ambitious people trying to start fintech businesses do not have not grown to 150,000 users, helping them manage three billion dollars worth of debt. Um, when you think about attracting those users, what's what's a principle for for getting new users that that was effective for you? Yeah, for I mean, consumer fintech. Um, you know, I really think it's it's two things. One is really understanding what your vision is for the company. Um, so at Chipper, you know, our goal is to really impact the people that are hit the hardest by student debt. And so these are, you know, teachers, people, uh, you know, public service, uh, public service, uh, employees who have access to these programs that have been promised to have their debt forgiven after 10 years and, you know, less than 2% of people apply actually get it. Uh, but also people of color and women, um, they are, they are getting hit really, really hard with student loan debt. Not only are they coming out with a substantially a lot more debt. But when, when they get into the workforce, you know, you're making 20% less 
And of course, that impacts your ability to, to repay um, and also impacts your savings rates, you know, for homes, for, for retirement, for other things. And so for us, it's like that's the grand vision that we have is really providing products and, and, and solutions, you know, for that group. Um, but early on, it's really finding the niche that's going to enable you to, to have that traction, right, to show that you can penetrate a market, that you can provide a solution for, for, for a certain set of users and to really make them happy and get them to be raving fans. And then from there, it's expanding, right? To, you know, and, and at that point, you have enough data and information to kind of understand what your next move, you know, should be. So with Chipper, you know, we launched at the beginning of 2020, Q1, before the pandemic. And so we had this grand vision of what Chipper is today. But in March 2020, student loan payments went on pause. So it's like, oh, we're going to have this app that's going to help people chip away their student loan debt, you know, through easy transactions and through rewards. And it's like, well, people don't have to pay their loans. They don't care about paying it off anymore, right? Um, and so for us, it was sitting down and really diving deeper into our, you know, into the market, talking to users and really understanding that, okay, this problem is so big, but there is a niche that we can still help. And we honed in on the, the public service loan group. Um, you know, people were still trying to apply. They were still trying to get access to that program. And it was very difficult. And so you know, for the last two years, that's really where, or for the first two years of the, of the business, we really focused on that subset. And created an incredible um, that that helped you know tens of thousands of users you know get over 120 million in, in public service loan forgiveness approved, um, and so we're really proud of that. And so it's like you know stick you know understand what your vision is, but then early on hone in on you know one niche, and from there you'll have the data and the opportunity to to expand your products and service to more people. So I love that you know you're like you're all excited, you ramp up, and a, a month in there's a global pandemic. But... <laughs> It destroys your primary market, right? Or at least their their urgency, their current urgency on it. Um, so I'm so with you. Uh, like I love this idea of, you know, take a deep breath and adapt and find out who you know who still has a current strong need, right? Um, my next question though is, when you think about getting the word out, okay? So we found these people. You know, we found these people that are still trying to work on this. That this is this is an urgent need that they're they're trying to deal with. I mean, was this social media? Is this one-on-ones? Like, what what were some of the early tactics to get the ball rolling? Yeah, I mean, I mean, early on, I think you have to do the things that uh, I think Paul Graham said that don't scale. Um, so, especially for us, like the student loan problem and navigating public service loan forgiveness was so confusing, and there were so many moving pieces, and every single borrower that we we faced had a different financial situation. They went to different schools, had different types of so they, they, you know, have been paying for three years versus eight years, right? Like there's just so many different variables. And so to try to build a solution right from the get-go that's going to help that entire, you know, niche of users was, was going to be impossible. So for us, it was one-on-ones talking to users. And literally we were doing manual, like, you know, filling out forms for people to understand exactly how it worked. And then once we understood like how a certain part of the process worked, it's like, okay, how do we go automate that with technology? And so for us, it was, it was really understanding, you know, the, the problems that people are facing, understanding what the challenges that they have, getting a better understanding of the process and how things work today. And then how can we use technology to automate that and, and make it as amazing as possible? So what you see in the app today, you know, took, you know, months and months and years of, you know, filling out things manually doing faxes, you know, sending faxes to, did you know people still fax things? <laughs> like, 
we sent tens of thousands of applications via fax to the to the servicers, right? But you know that was that was the way for us to actually automate this and and you know get this forgiveness that teachers and, and nurses you know deserve. So um, let's talk about getting those teachers and nurses. Were you going on forums? Like, were you talking to nursing associations? Were you just calling a friend who knows a nurse? Like, how did you get how did you get those first ones to even be filling them out in hand? We tried right everything possible, right? So it, it is, you know, exhausting your, you know, your personal network. Unfortunately, I have amazing friends who, you know, I grew up with, you know, that I went to high school and college with that became teachers. So blasting on Facebook, on Instagram, on LinkedIn and, and getting that initial set of users and testers that gratefully they threw us with that, you know, you know, through the road bumps that we faced and the terrible process we had early on, uh, but they helped us learn. And, you know, for us, it was really, you know, trying to find pockets of where do teachers live? You know, where does, where does your network live? Where, you know, where are your customers? And for us, Instagram worked really, really well. So there's teachers out there who have followings of 50, 100,000, 150,000 followers. And, you know, we reached out to these teachers, you know, slid into their DMs and was like, hey, you know, we have a solution to help teachers get out of student loan debt or, or, or get access to public service and forgiveness. Have you ever applied? Do you have loans? We'd love to help you for free. And, you know, it, it was working with a couple hundred of those teachers who, you know, we actually helped, you know, get public service loan forgiveness. And when you help somebody get 25, 50, 75K forgiven and their loans va vanish, I mean, they're going to be raving fans for you. So then they would share on their, you know, their platform. And then, you know, the users just started to come in. And so for us, you know, you know, thank goodness for social media today. It allows to, you know, find our first subset of users. And then from there, we really started to expand. That's awesome. Um, so as that's evolved, you know, so that great, you've got the initial users, um, you're doing the things that don't scale and you're starting to see patterns. What was that next level? Like, wh where was this pivot point where you went from like getting going to like, starting to get some mass adoption in, into like the thousands of thousands of users, what was an aha moment or what's something you figured out? I mean, so for us, it was trying to, you know, trying to do as much rapid experimentation as possible. So really trying to, one, look at the traditional, you know, avenues of, of acquiring users. So from, you know, working with like affiliates, working, you know, testing things on Facebook and Instagram ads, um, you know, Google and Bing, you know, paid search. Like we, we tried almost every avenue possible and really where we started to pick up steam was uh, paid search, which is very surprising. Um, you know, typically when you're in a fintech or you're, you know, you're in the student loan space, it's very expensive to do any type of advertising on Google or, or, or Bing. You know, like a keyword for like student loans or for investing or retirement or like anything in fintech is very, very expensive, right? Cost per click. But you know, because we have been in the trenches with our users, because we've done so many user, hundreds of user interviews, we understand that the way they interact with their student loans and their student loan servicer, whenever they wanted to take action or learn something, you know, if I need to go make a payment at Navient or Great Lakes or anywhere else, I'm going to Google and I'm typing in Navient or, 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 you know, Great Lakes or whoever, you know, you know, Great Lakes or Navient are one of those exciting apps that people have on their phones that they're willing to see, right? It's like, they, they don't want to have easy access to see how much debt they have. And so we just really understanding the way our users interacted with their student loans was typically through Google search. And so we're like, hey, maybe we could run ads around Navient or the servicers 
and we found a massive gap in the market. And so for us, we're able to drive thousands of users for a really, really low you know, cost per click. And then from there, it was just optimizing every part of the funnel. Like, how do we make the website a little more trustworthy? How do we make the messaging more trustworthy? How do we answer questions that people have when they come to our website? Um, and so ton of experimentation. And then once we found a little bit of traction, it's like, okay, how do we really take advantage of this? So I'm interested, you know, we had um, Perry Marshall on the show. He's He wrote the best-selling Google AdWords book of all time. Oh, wow. And he, he uh, it's great. He, but he talks about like how it's like such a powerful, it's such a powerful tool, but, but if you use it without a competency, it'll just like vacuum out your bank account really quick. So when you think about the learning curve on paid search, pay-per-click, stuff like this, uh, what are a couple of principles that you would share with people? Um, one is I'm sure you have a friend <laughs> who may have a little bit of experience running ads before. And so, I mean, for, for me, it was, it was, you know, being in Austin, you know, we had access to, to a couple of people who had some experience with, with AdWords. Um, so it was really just getting a baseline of understanding from them on just how to set it up. Um, second is anybody on our growth team, um, we use Udemy, there's Coursera, there's a bunch of other platforms where you could go learn this stuff. You know, you could pay $10, $20 and have, have you know, a, 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 you know, a masterclass on Google AdWords, on Bing AdWords, you know, whatever it is. So very cheaply, you could really get a foundation in place, you know, on one of those platforms. Um, also, you know, through the accelerators that we, we've been grateful to be a part of, you know, there's blogs and articles written around kind of getting things set up. Um, and so the first, you know, depending on the type of business that, that, that you're running, there's so many different settings within Google AdWords, whether you're trying to generate leads or trying to get clicks or like whatever it is. So it's hard to get, you know, you know, advice across the board. Here's how do you go set it up? It's really go get an understanding of what are kind of the variables and levers within the platforms. And then how does that best, you know, translate into your business? And so, you know, you know, go learn that stuff first. Also, I will say, um, crushes Google uh, for us, which is shocking. I was like, who uses Bing? I didn't know Bing is still like, you know, like a platform that people are still searching for. But what we learned is, again, working with the public sector, teachers, government employees, you know, a lot of their devices are Microsoft devices. So teachers in their classroom typing Navient or whatever, you know, is coming through Bing. And so we actually were like, hey, let's just test out Bing and see if it, it'll work. And we just saw like such a bigger a rush of users come from that platform versus Google. Google's fantastic. It was just, you know, a a, a channel that we didn't expect to, to see people come. Think about how much, like, what if small percentage of the population is like, oh man, I got to get some Bing pay-per-click. You know, from a competition standpoint, <laughs> it's kind of like the, the, like the Warren Buffett principle of like, go where the crowds aren't, right? Oh man, we're ranking number one on Bing. Like, <laughs> that's what we're pushing for. Okay, this is great. What, what's what's one more principle for, you know, people who are trying to really get scale and, you know, they wish they had 150,000 clients? What's another principle you'd share with, with CEOs? It's just really, you know, the, you know, for us, the, the campaign, the strategies, uh, the things that we expected to work really well, in most cases, didn't. Um, and so it was trying a bunch of different tactics um, that, you know, just to see what where we could get momentum, and from there it was just building upon it. Um, and so, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, um, you know, 
don't get pessimistic. You know, if the campaigns or the roadmap or the strategy that you put in place is not working, because I think that's that's the case for most startups. Um, you know, it, it's it's trying a lot of different things, and you know, uh, you're going to surprise yourself by what actually works and enables you to to bring in users and customers. That's great. Like, what are some examples of some of your experiments that you're like, I thought this was going to be awesome, and then it didn't pan out. I mean, Facebook and Instagram ads. I was like, I click on them all the time. <laughs> like, they're going to be so great for us, right? It's like, um, and when we actually, like, for us, it, it was interesting to learn that when we launched them, uh, we got put into a special category. Like, we were, we're a credit company because we have loans and, and student debts, like, in our campaigns. And there's no other way for us to advertise what we do without using those words. But the algorithm picks them up automatically, and it's impossible for us to get out of that, that category. Because of that, it limits our ability to really target our users. Um, so obviously we want people who are college educated because they have student debt and certain age groups and things like that. And, and you lose all of that ability. And so, you know, when we fundraise, we're like, hey, we're going to launch, you know, put this tranche of money, in, you know, into Instagram and Bing ad or, or Instagram and Facebook ads because that's where our users are and um, just didn't work out for us at all. Um, college campuses, you know, you would think that that's a high concentration of people with student loan debt, more than anywhere else in the world, right? And so let's run these campaigns. Let's get, you know, uh, you know, so, some some boots on the streets. Let's hire these, you know, these teams on college campuses, ha- hand out Red Bull and talk about student loans and get people to sign up for the app. Um, and we thought, you know, this is going to be a great way to build our business and it because it's worked for so many other businesses, right? And for us, we just, you know, we learned that college students just don't care about their debt until they leave school. <laughs> They're focused on on class and having fun and, and, you know, the things that matter to them then. They're not so much focused on, you know, trying to get out of student loan debt faster. And so um, that was another, oh, man, like we thought this was going to help us scale very quickly and it just it just didn't work out. You talked about educating people on your site. So let's say you use Bing or whatever way to get them there. Uh, what are some principles about like, you know, most people have a frequently asked questions section on their website and it's not that helpful to the business where it sounds like you answering questions was super helpful to your business. Can you talk about, sounds like you just took it much more seriously than other folks and you were like, there's something different about what you guys were helping with uh, in the way you did it. Yeah. I mean, our, our space too, like there's so traditionally, um, and we've seen it over the last couple of months too, with the announcements around forgiveness and repayment, you know, resuming, um, there's so many scams that have come out. Um, and so, Building up trust is a huge component of what we have to provide, you know, when somebody comes to our site. And so the first thing, again, was sitting down with, with potential users, with users and getting an understanding of, you know, what do we, like, what do you need to see on our site? What information are you missing? Um, what are some things that we could be adding to help you feel, to help us feel more trustworthy, right? That we're the real deal, that we're not a scam. Um, and so it was really just getting understanding of, of you know, what are those components? Um, and also, there's been fintechs, there's been other companies in whatever space that you're in who have spent millions of dollars optimizing and, you know, doing this, right? And so it was monitoring and going to, you know, Lemonade, going to Acorns, going to, you know, some of these other fintechs who have built up millions of users and seeing, you know, what kind of components they're using on their site and, you know, kind of taking those and adapting them to, to you know, make it fit, fit chipper. Um, and then, uh, we do a lot of landing page optimization. So, you know, just, you know, enabling users to come in and then have, have one, two or three different variations of that, 
that site or language or messaging or images and things like that uh, to just, you know, figure out what is converting people the most. Um, and a lot of times that surprises you too by the language that you use or the images that you use. Um, and so again, it was sitting down with users, getting that core, you know, foundation um, and then just optimizing on top of that. Why don't you share with us a principle there? Like I'm, I'm a big Neil Patel fan. Like I pretty much hate email newsletters. I'm like constantly unsubscribing from everything. But like Neil Patel is one that I've stayed on for years because he actually has like really actionable advice in that world. Um, what, what's, you know, what's a lesson you learned there doing landing page optimization that, you know, wasn't obvious at first that you figured out? Yeah. I mean, and it's, it was surprising because it's something that like we, like on our team use every single day when we are purchasing products from Amazon or you're going to, you know, purchase something on any sites as you look at reviews. It's like, what's the rating here? What are people saying about this? Like that, that social proof has such a huge component on helping people make decisions on what they buy and how quickly they buy. Um, and so for us, because we, we, you know, we had this foundation of, of people that we've helped, you know, either they're, they're using a roundup to reward service or we've helped them get forgiveness, but it's using their words, their stories um, on our site. Um, and so for our forgiveness, you know, pages, um, you know, that had the biggest drop off because it's like, hey, this is a scam. I get these phone calls all the time. People leave voicemails. I'm getting these letters that are not from the government. Like, like this feels so scammy to me. It was putting the, the images of our users, Instagram's, you know, pages on there and enabling the click on that to go see the story that they posted about about us. With that one change, like we saw a massive increase in just the number of conversions of people coming to that site. And so after that, it was just like, let's put them everywhere. Obviously with their permission, but like, let's put them all over us. Let's put them on our emails. Let's put them in the app. Um, let's let's really let our users, you know, shine for us. Um, and so, you know, it's not just the words. It was just like the images and the ability for, for people, for visitors to come and, and go to those posts to, to really get them over the finish line. That's great. Absolutely, I want a Tesla. I have to get a Tesla. Everybody's getting a Tesla. You know, I think one thing I want to touch on is just, um, you know, diving a little bit deeper into just the state of student loans. I think, you know, with payments being paused for almost three years, like I can't believe it's it's been that long. Um, I just wanted to share more about just the state of student loans and like where, where things are. Um, I think a lot of people forgot, you know, that that they exist and like how it's how it's impacting people. So uh, right now there's 46 million people, you know, in the country drowning in 1.7 trillion, the T, trillion dollars in student loan debt. Um, and it's growing at $230 million per day. Um, it's it's in one out of four households. And, and because payments have resumed, it's really impacting people's ability to save and invest and uh, buy homes, you know, do all the things we're supposed to do after school. And with payments coming back again, you know, people have forgotten these three, four, five hundred dollar payments that they had, right? They're coming back into their budget. Inflation is super high. Interest rates are super high. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of people that are going to be struggling again, um, you know, given that payments have, have reappeared. Um, and so, you know, with Chipper, we're really just trying to help people navigate and, you know, make sure people are entering the right repayment programs and are getting access to to forgiveness and, and repayment programs that they have no idea that they may they may be they may qualify for. Um, and so just given the times that we're in right now, it's like, I just want everybody to know there's a solution out there. Our app is completely free. Um, and yeah, it's it's been incredible to, to just see the impact that we've had on the users. Um, okay, so thinking about the state of the student loan world, uh, this might be too political for you, Sid, so feel free to pass on it. 
But uh, it is interesting to me, like you look at post-2008, how much lenders got in trouble for predatory lending, right? And to me, like I look at this idea of like, is there, I'm interested if you agree with me or not, and you're totally fine to disagree. To me, it feels like there is some accountability that, that should take place on the part of the institutions. Like when you look at how fast they've, they've raised their tuition rates versus the product of helping young people get a career. Like, you know, it might cost triple or quadruple. Like I went to school 20 years ago before yeah. I dropped out to be an entrepreneur, right? My daughter, my daughter did her, this is her first semester at college. And actually my wife just went back to university after 20 years. Uh, this semester as well. So it's kind of funny to have them both. That's awesome. Hit it. And <laughs> That's like awesome. there, there are degrees right now that are literally triple the tuition from just when I was going, yep. like in triple the tuition from 2001, yep. right? And, and But the, the job they're preparing for you, the salary has only gone up 10%, but the cost has gone 300%. And I think about like, like I love my daughter. She's great. But she's not sitting there thinking like, she's not, like, I think about how the, the student loan gets handed out with, with so little education, so little context of what this is going to mean for the next 20 years of your life, right? And, um, and it kind of gets handed out like candy. It feels like there's some aspect of like accountability that institutions who've just skyrocketed the cost selling it to an unsuspected 18-year-old. I don't know. Do, do you feel like there's any any uh, accountability that institutions should be required to do? Because people say, well, hey, nobody held the gun to your kid's head to go get to go get that degree. Absolutely. Yeah. And yet it is a pretty unsuspecting, you know, an unsuspecting, like they're not even allowed to buy alcohol, but but they're okay to sign away 20 years of their life with no education, no responsibility on the lender's part, the institution's part to give an accountability of like, it's going to cost you this much and you're only likely to make that much. Absolutely. Um, I'll say I'm a victim of that entire process, right? Like I, you know, came from a loving, caring home, but my parents, you know, had me very young. Um, you know, they, you know, I'm the first time I've ever graduated from high school. Edu getting an education wasn't an option for me. It was like, you're going to college. I don't care where you go, but you're going to college. And, you know, you know, fortunate enough, like I had parents who really pushed me and I ended up going out of state for school. I didn't know what that meant. It's like out of state tuition versus in-state tuition. Like I just knew that if I walked into the financial aid office before every semester and I signed a piece of paper, I can go register for classes. And so that's what I did without ever having any formal training in finances or interest rates or loans or anything else in high school or even in college, right? It's like you're never taught these things if, if you're not taught. Um, and so that's, you know, why I walked away from school with over 100K in debt because I really didn't know what I was doing. And then the support that you get after you leave school, it's not there. Like I remember reading calls from my servicers. I had three different servicers and I'm like, hey, I can't pay these bills. Payments are $1,500 a month. I can't afford this on my entry-level salary. And I'm calling one servicer. They're like, well, you know, we can help you with your loans, but not these loans over here, right? So the support that you're getting from your school afterwards, is it, it's not there. It's non-existent. And so... You know, I do feel it's somewhat of a predatory situation. Um, I'm going to be careful, you know, how I kind of navigate the, the next part of the conversation. <laughs> um, but but I do think there needs to be some responsibility taken, you know, from the institution. 
because this problem of $1.7 trillion isn't caused by people just, you know, making financial mistakes because they're 18 years old, right? It's really a supply and demand situation where the schools know that no matter what price they charge for school, right, they're going to get paid through the federal government for it. So as a as a student, you can no if you go to an accredited institution, no matter what your tuition bill is, you can go to the federal government Department of Education and they will give you the money to go pay that. And schools understand that, so that's why you've seen this rate of inflation for tuition at seven percent. When you know, like you said, the 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 increase in the value that you get, you know, with with a salary coming out of school, you know, is a small percentage of that, right? Um, so you know, I, I do think that there needs to be regulation. On, you know, on the government side, on controlling how much schools can actually raise their rates to prevent people from or prevent institutions from raising their, their prices and also capping on how much people can borrow for certain programs, knowing that the expected salary for certain programs, you know, typically a certain like you shouldn't be able to you know, be pulling out hundreds of thousands of dollars in loans when, you know, the path in that career is going to make it impossible for you to pay off that debt. I mean, look, look at like food, right? No longer can you get away with stuffing just whatever you want in food and selling it in grocery stores. Like you have to list fat, sugar. Do you know what I mean? Like you have, you have to give some transparency to the end consumer about what they're about put, to put in their body. There's so many things that like sound healthy. And if you actually flipped around, you're like, oh, geez. So this shit belongs in the candy aisle. You know what I mean? Right? Yeah. Well, that, I... that normally, that in olden days they didn't have to do. And like, you know, my, so my wife, she's the first one in a hundred years in, you know, her family line, she's the first one actually in history to have gone to college. Right. And, um, like it's so different for my daughter having, having her parents help navigate like, Oh, which school are we going to? Oh, you know, like, you know, like for now we're, we're able to pay for it all with cash, but like, what if that wasn't the case Absolutely. or things like that? Right. And, um, I look at this idea of like, just the absolute lack of transparency of the conversation of like, I mean, just like literally the label on the bottle of like, okay, look, you're in a program, even if it wasn't capped, there should be like this thing of like, you're in a program where the national average income is this and national average expenses for a family of three are this and your debt payment will make this, which means you're yes. not going, you're never taking your kids to Disneyland. Yep. If you take this much debt and become a teacher, if you take this much debt and become a nurse, it, it means like your estimated annual uh, excess income for the for the next 15 years is $15 a month. Absolutely. Like, having like even just that conversation, like, are you sure you still want to do this? You know what I mean? And and again, this like alternatives. I mean, how many of us got preached to? Go to school. Everything will be better if you go to school. That's the thing. It's like, especially if you're coming out from a tough area, right? It's like, you know, you 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 want to live a better life, right? And a lot of, you know, like my parents sacrificed everything they could so that I could go get an education so I can live this American dream that, you know, you know, I envisioned. I didn't know it was going to put me 100K in debts and not be able to, you know, barely survive for the first, you know, couple years of my life and save, not be able to buy homes, like do all those things. And so... That is still the dialogue, you know, in a lot of communities where it's like you have to get an education in order to reach upward mobility, right? But that's why we also have this, um, you know, like student loans don't discriminate, but it is impacting, you know, some groups a little bit harder. 
where if you have to pull out student loan debts, you know, your ability to you know, make a certain salary coming out of school, it just makes it more difficult for you to actually reach that American dream and reach a level of somewhat financial freedom. It may take 10, 15 years, you know, after you leave school. Listen, my, my parents were born in the 50s. If they got a college degree, they were, that was actually less common. Do you mean there are so many applicants out there that didn't have a college degree? By the time my generation, you know, I'm like the end of Gen X, beginning of millennials, right? Yeah. It was not uncommon. And like this whole narrative, get a good education so you can get a good job, so you can be taken care of. Like that wasn't even true for my parents' generation. That was true for my grandparents' generation. Get a good job, they'll take care of you for life kind of thing in, in certain cases. It wasn't true for my parents. It's so not true for my generation. There is not a chance that it is true for my daughter's generation, right? And, but the narrative hasn't changed. And it's like, you know, Warren Buffett or the people that follow Warren Buffett, like Howard Marks at Oak Tree or Bruce Flatt at Brookfield manages 600 billion, right? It's like a good deal is only a good deal based on the price. Do you know what I mean? Like, like a good, good stock, good stock to buy in the stock market is not just based on whether you like Tesla or not. It's based on what price you're paying for those shares compared to what it's expected to make. Absolutely. Right. And, and it does feel like basically the institutions, the institutions get to say like, do you want a Tesla or not? And they don't have to have any conversation about what you're paying for the Tesla. It's like, yeah, I want a Tesla. I've Absolutely. been told I want to get a Tesla. I have to get a Tesla. Get a good Everybody's education. getting a Tesla. Yeah. Like you have to get a Tesla. And, and I hope that it, it does start to change a narrative where, um, and, and we're starting to see it too, where, you know, could you just go get cert like certifications or go learn certain skill skills needed to go perform like a certain job? College is not for everybody, right? Not everybody should be going to college, right? And so, you know, changing that narrative. Uh, but also, I, you know, I think schools really need to like reprogram the way they operate. Like there's no reason that you should be, you know, taking three, four years of elective classes that have nothing to do with the career that you're pursuing and getting at 50K, you know, in debt, you know, to do it, right? And so I'm hoping that we start to see some regulation change, you know, as much as I hate to say, it, get the government involved to kind of force, you know, that to happen, especially if these schools are getting funded by the federal government. Like that's the way they are getting paid is through is, you know, through taxpayer money is, is through federal funds. And so if that's the case, you know, kind of jump in and you know, start to make that change. Um, but I, I think it's going to take a lot of time. It's going to take a lot of time. Um, and until then, you know, Chipper's here for, for those of us who... <laughs> Who, you know, uh, who are victims, uh, you know, the process. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, it is the kid's choice. It is the parent's choice to go do this. And and it's not like nobody's forcing my daughter or my wife to go back to school right now. Yeah. Right? Um, and, like, uh, I'm not saying that we need to make up and make people's decisions for them. However, I, I'm not like I'm a, I'm a generally like a more like personal responsibility, take accountability for your life. Don't blame your don't blame your problems on others kind of guy. At least I'd like to think I am. Yeah. And at the same time, um, shouldn't there be some accountability in what we're offering? Just like just like companies should have to tell us what's in the food they're selling us. You know, shouldn't there be some sort of accountability of like, so hold on, what are you selling me again? And how much are you charging for it? Like, isn't that like a pretty basic thing that like is that so much as, to ask for right it's like you know 
even financial aid packages, like I'm sure like you saw them, you know, like when you when you first go to school, like they give you a financial aid package saying, okay, here's what you need to pay. In your case, it's like you got to pay all of it. <laughs> but for a lot of people, it's like, here's what you need to pay out of pocket. Here's, you know, what you can get in grants. Here's what you can get in loans. And here's what you can get in parent plus loans, yeah. right? And so, right, you're seeing, a, you're seeing a ton of schools that are just defaulting on giving parents loans when that's not the case. Like they shouldn't need to like pull out loans for the kids to go to school. Like it should, you know, they should know that that's an option that hey, I need to pull out these loans or not, you know, for my, for my kids to actually go here. There's no transparency around that, like either. Uh, I will say uh, my, my student loans turned out to be like really great return on investment for me. What interest rates? Like one person, one and a half, two percent. No, yeah. But I, like as an art school dropout, uh, what I did is I used my 1500 bucks to buy my fiance an engagement ring. And she said, yes. And we just celebrated 20 year anniversary in April. So <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, my $1,500 student loan was a win. I hear those same, so I, I hear those same stories of college students who did that and they put it in crypto, like when the boom was going on. So oh. for some people, it has worked out really, really well. Um, so congratulations for, for the few of you where <laughs> it's really, really worked out. It was worth whatever I had to pay to pay that one off. But uh, hey, listen, congrats on all the success. Um, thanks for sharing with us a little peek behind the curtain of how you guys did it. And uh, and I'm glad you're out there taking care of people that, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of folks haven't focused on helping. This was fun, Jess. Thanks so much for having me on. It's great to meet you. Okay. Bye, everyone.